Welcome to Growth Over Easy, the podcast where we explore the depths of life with an optimistic lens. I'm your host, Lily Rachels, and I believe pain has the potential to produce more growth than happiness ever could. I teach you how to grow through grief and give you actionable tools you can start using today. It's time to choose growth over the easy path in life. Let's grow together. Welcome back to Growth Over Easy. Today, I am joined by two very special guests, Brent Carey and Kelly G. Both of these men are here to represent the organization Survivors for Change. How are you guys doing today? Awesome. Doing great. Thanks for having us. I'm glad you're here. So Brent, we met kind of serendipitously in Charleston. My boyfriend and I were visiting and we sat next to you and your wife at a really great restaurant struck up some conversation, ended up going and having a drink together after that. And one thing I really love about connecting with people, when you start to share any vulnerability, I think it just opens up other people to share. And we were having a really great conversation and you shared about an organization, Survivors for Change. Mm -hmm. And I was really excited to have that conversation. Um, it's something I'm very passionate about as well. And you connected me to Kelly. So now we're all here today to talk about that organization and both of your stories experiencing grooming and abuse while playing hockey. So yeah. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to start with you, Brent. Could you share your story on how you became connected to Survivors for Change? Uh, sure. So uh, my story is more from the grooming side, not the abuse side. And I, when I speak, I speak more from the grooming side than I do the abuse side. But when I was 18, 17, I guess, my dad was uh, passing away of stage four cancer. And um, he died in January. He passed away in January, said some pretty horrible things to him. But this coach came into my life six months later after my dad passed away. I had the chance to go play Hockey is a little different than any other sport. You don't go from high school to college. There's an in-between called juniors. Um, I had a chance to play with my buddies on a certain team. Or I had a chance to go play juniors with him. And uh, he sat in my living room and told my mom that he would get me to college. He would help me on my path to go to college. And all I had to do was, all she had to do was trust him and trust the process. And I was a little skeptical at first, um, just because I was small and I wasn't sure if I was gonna make the team. And yeah. um, he said, come on, try out. And I led the tryouts and scoring, made the team. And then that's when the grooming started from my perspective. He had already groomed my mom uh, well before that and was continuing to groom my mom. And um, throughout the process, he started asking her, hey, can he stay over the night? Can I drive him to practice? She, of course, said yes, because you know, he was my father figure because I lost I was my say, dad. Yeah. He really yeah, inserted so himself as that. That's exactly it. He inserted himself as my father figure. And that's, that was part of the grooming process. And so I was probably two or three times a month, maybe more on the two sides a month. I would stay at his house. Um, we'd go to dinner. It's funny. We all have the same restaurant in common. Um, he would take us to oven grinders and then we'd go to the comedy show, second city. And then you go back to his house and I mean, we talked about everything. We talked about hockey. We talked about girls. We talked about everything. And he proceeded after a certain amount of time feeling comfortable with talking about sex, uh, hockey, and and the, started shifting more towards girls than hockey. And uh, when he felt comfortable enough, he told me there was a, a lady that he knew. Her name was Sheila. And um, she gave the best oral sex you've ever had. And he said, if you want me to, I can call her and she can come over. And so at first I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm still a virgin. So heck yeah, I'll do that. And um, I don't know, about five minutes into 
after I said yes, I was I just felt weird about it. And it wasn't weird that it was from him. It was weird that it was my first experience. And I wanted my first experience to be something that I could remember and be passionate about and, and talk to the person. And so I said, no, kind of left something out. But so if she came over from our standpoint, she, she was a rape victim. And so she had to be bound. We had to be bound and we had to be, um, we had to put something over her head so we couldn't see her, whether it was a pillowcase, a paper bag, a blindfold, whatever it might be, but something we were, we couldn't see her. So he asked me two more times. Each time I said, no, so he asked me about three times and, and I tell people, had he asked me on the fourth, I probably would have said yes, because I got closer and closer to her coming over. And then, you know, right about then I, uh, I went off and I went to Omaha, which was probably the best thing for me. I, I left Chicago. I went and played juniors in Omaha. And then I found out five years ago, there was an article written about me and the founder, Mike Sachs, one of the founders, Mike Sachs of Survivors for Change and another gentleman. So there's three of us in the first article. And we all had the same story, pretty much. Mike's and the other guys was more about abuse. Mine was more from the grooming side, but it was the same coach, same story, same MO, everything. And and we were all decades apart. So, you know, that's kind of what happened to me. And um, and then obviously I got connected with, during the article process, I got connected with Mike, who called me the day after the article hit. The article is in The Athletic. If you ever want to read it, you can just type in Chico Adratus. If you want to in the internet, it'll pop up. A lot of other things will pop up too. But um, yeah, so Mike called me and said, hey, I don't ever want this to happen to anybody else. I'm going to start a, a foundation. And I said, well, whatever you need from me, I'm in. And then Kelly's story popped. And I <laughs> I have a hard I have a hard time listening to Kelly's story. So it's, yeah. So I'll let Kelly tell his story. Yeah. And I just, before we get into that, I want to say something that I think a lot of people might not realize about this type of abuse is like you said, he didn't just groom you. He groomed your mom and tried to yeah. you know get close to her and make her believe that he was somehow going to be this father figure to you so that he could get close to you. We, I think we have this idea of predators as these horribly scary looking people that just come and take what they want. But it's this, the grooming process is very different than that. It really is. And if you think about like, we have a term that we've kind of adopted called predatory grooming because grooming in and of itself isn't that bad of a word. But when you put predatory grooming in front of it, it has a lot more meaning to it. And if you think about the grooming process, right, and you look at it from, and I'll take it from Chico's standpoint, but if, even if you look at it from any coaches or anyone in the community standpoint, because it's not the big bad wolf, it's the priest, it's the babysitter, it's the the kid next door, it's the Cub Scout leaders, it's, you know, it's coaches, it's those are the people. It's not the big bad wolf that's walking down the street. And the grooming process really starts with they have to surround themselves, which he did with a bunch of people that are supporters of him. You need that support. He needs that support system so that when something happens, everyone rallies around him and they don't rally around the person who is making the accusations or, is, you know, coming out with the claim. And he did. He 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 had some he had a lot of supporters and the owner of the club that hired him actually was Chico was recommended by a couple of parents that had coached. Chico had coached their older sons and, and they vouched for him, even though if you read the article, something at the University of Minnesota, which is what happened with Mike Sachs, which was two or three years before he got to got back to Chicago, they just kicked him out uh, at Minnesota. And there was really nothing said, but these other people vouched for Chico. And then hence Chico becomes a coach of our team. Um, he groomed me. There's um, speculation that there's another player on the team that got groomed and probably maybe got abused as well, but that person hasn't come forward. But 
you have to surround yourselves with those people. And then you can go find what I call the gazelle in the safari. And I just happened to be the gazelle. I mean, that was perfect. You know, mm-hmm. my dad passed away. My mom didn't know anything about hockey, you know, and he can step in and become my father figure, work the hockey angle and do all that stuff. And then here we are. I stuck up for the guy. I was one of his supporters after he left. And mm-hmm. um, so I became part of that support group too, even though, and I didn't realize I was a victim or a survivor until the article came out. I'd heard the stories, but I just declined. I was like, nothing ever happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until Mike and Kelly were like, what happened to you, man, is that's jacked up. It's way worse than what happened to us. And it wasn't until those guys that I finally realized kind of what happened. And that's, that's when all the bad stuff started happening in my life. Yeah. And I want to get into that part too, kind of what it looked like when you guys started that healing process. But Kelly, I'd love to hear your story. Brent, we always appreciate when you're so forthcoming and willing to share your part. And it's hard for people to understand just how hard, how difficult and painful it is to sit in front of a camera and do that. You know, Brent's story for us, you know, when I say for us, the ones that were actually, that were sexually abused, we are Brent's story and it's crippling to us. You know, with the situation with his dad and just how manipulative and sick that whole process is. Because um, our family dynamics were unique or some, for some of us bad, you know, in my circumstance, it was distance, you know, it wasn't bad, I had good parents and caring parents, but you know, for somebody to go into that situation, it's just every single time it just breaks me into pieces. So thanks for being so willing, Brent. You know, what I won't do is I won't go through all the same um, stuff that Brent did because there's a real pattern here and Brent used the term predatory grooming. There's a serial aspect to the abuse though and when what's followed just the way that it's just it's designed and step by step you know you have, you fit a classification of person and the way that he approaches your family and your friends and then the process of desensitizing you to sex you know like brent is saying take you out to dinner take you to second city then drive you around and show you all the crazy the prostitutes because you know for somebody like me i'm from alaska i was born and raised on a homestead uh, i didn't have a flushing toilet till i was 12. You know, I, I had no idea about any of this stuff. The first time I, I ended up in Chicago, I remember coming up on the interstate and seeing the skyline. I, my brain couldn't even rectify that it was real. Mm-hmm. It was so bizarre. You know, so I was pretty easy to fool and to lead into those types of situations. And then to the strip club and then that gradually gets up and more and more. And then, you know, and then he starts getting comfortable with like, you know, putting on porn and stuff like that. And just like making you feel like it's, what everybody does, you know, because we didn't know any better because we we're naive. And most of us, when you meet us, we're going to be more on the innocent side, I would say, especially at that age. You know, we just didn't um, we were gentle creatures, I would say, you know, and, and you took advantage of that. For me, for the those of us that are out and open from from this particular predator from Chico, I'm the youngest so far that is out and spoken out. You know, so when you you meet and you talk to some of the other ones over the span of these decades, you can see how this process evolved, um, which is another uh, sick aspect to this whole story. And, you know, but even by the time he got to me, the situation wasn't quite as lax as some of the other stories that we've heard of this happening. As far as the being restrained and blindfolded, mine was pretty intense with that. To the point when the first time it happened, I, I basically was ready to have a panic attack and freaked out, you know, because 
I mean, pretty, you know, hands tied behind your back and your ankles bound and just layers and layers of, of coverings over your eyes, you know, bandanas and nightshades and everything. It was just, it was a nightmare. I thought I was just being weak and that's what he was putting in my head the whole time. And, you know, so the first time I actually stopped it happening and then he tore me down, you know, and just kept chipping away at it, kept trying. Like Brent said, if you would ask me a fourth time, I probably would have done it with me because I was so isolated with him under his roof and so distant from anybody. And I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have any support system to hear any better or think any differently. So it just continued the breaking down and the shaming aspect of it to the point where I gave in. And then once I gave in, it just ran rampant and uh, the abuse got worse and worse, you know, just a basic oral sex to way beyond that as it went by. And, you know, that's one of the things that we have to look at when we're dealing and discussing these serial predators, because with the broken systems that we're dealing with and the reason that these things are allowed to happen over such a long period of time is allowing these predators to evolve their systems and make these types of abuse worse and worse. Uh, You know, and that's one of the reasons that Survivor Should Change is so focused on that aspect and understanding what this process really looks like and defining it. I know we'll talk more about that later, but in the discussion of the story, 20 years or so between when he was grooming Brent and before he even started with me, how much does that change a person in their process? Yeah, the way you describe that too, like the desensitization process where it's not like he just went straight to you guys with, hey, let's try this. It was like this slow process of, well, let's just go to this comedy club and like, you know, listen to some humor and notice the prostitutes and then pornography. And then it came to the actual, like the sexual abuse. And you said something about that innocent side. And I think that's like listening to both of your stories with breaks my heart so much because I do feel like there's a big voice out there with the Me Too movement and everything for women in this space. But I think we've forgotten that men face this abuse, boys face this abuse. And it's almost when society kind of talks about like a boy's first sexual experience, you know, as women, they think it should be this, you know, special thing and great thing. And men, I remember even like growing up, it was always kind of like a guy was just, you know, lucky if with anything. Right. And so I feel like there's just this idea that only girls have this innocence, but that's not the case. It's like, that is something so special and to be taken in such an abusive way, like the trauma and the effects of that. And I'd love to hear from both of you, like, what was that like when you came to terms with it? Was there like a space between like the abuse happening and you kind of suppressed it and then became aware of it later on in life? Or was it this continuous like event where you like always felt the effects of it? I'll start because my story is way different than Kelly's. Like I said, I didn't suppress anything. I didn't realize anything happened. I was out there supporting Chico. I just thought it was, there was actually a woman. Why would he do this? He was my father figure. I heard the stories. People had said it. I mean, there was a rumor around Chicago that that's who he was. That was his MO. But I never believed it because why would your father figure? Why would a guy who loved you like that? Why would he ever do something like that? I was so naive to it. And it wasn't until the article came out that I finally realized that this had happened to me. And it was, you know, when Katie Strang, who wrote the article, when she called me, I was, I'm going to ask you two questions. One of them was who wrote it. I knew that was going to get the answer for that one. But the second one was, 
blindfold or paper bag. And she's like, I heard blindfold, paper bag and pillowcase. And I dropped the phone because no one had ever, I didn't meet anyone else who knew that. And she'd already talked to several other people that had said that, that story. And, and I broke down and that's when everything kind of rushed back to me and hit me. And, and um, that's when my healing process started five years ago. Kelly's has probably been going on a lot longer than my healing process has been going on. What about you, Kelly? What was that like for you? Was there any kind of like space between the abuse and the effects of it? Or was it just from day one? It's a complicated answer, to be honest. And one, I'm still figuring it out. And I'm always going to be figuring that out because it's both at the same time. And I, I know that sounds crazy, but you know, when you repress something, that means that there's some level of recognition of it, right? Or observation, you know, so there was repression immediately. I, I knew something was wrong immediately. And I can look back now and unfortunately, like very detailed, remember a couple of uh, some horrific situations there where the light bulb came on. And looking back at it, I can look at it and I go, you knew that, you knew right then, like, why didn't you fail? Why didn't you stop? But a couple things here. So part of that is he put a lot of time and like strategy into making you believe in him, believe in his process, believe in like trust him explicitly, you know, and he did that in all walks of your life, all around you. It was hard to doubt him. It was hard to doubt those things. And just like Brent was saying, like, you didn't want to doubt it. You didn't want to believe something like that. And he was good at making you feel like that was what was really happy. And that was that. And like, you're feeling that this way because you're just, you're nervous. And this is why you're not part of one of the guys, right? All the guys are doing, you know, everybody's doing kind of deal, you know, like making you feel like you're the one that that's the, the strange one. And that stays with you. And those moments of clarity or internal explosion where it comes through and boils to the surface. And it's like, you know, what happened, idiot. You know, what do you do with that? You know, and for me, it was a lot of it was it started with lashing out and self-injury and stuff like that to make myself rebury it down and just as deep as I could, <laughs> you know, and then convince myself that I'm just making it up. This is in your head, you know, that you've heard the stories and you were because I used to get made fun of bad and bullied bad by the by the hockey community about my relationship with Chico, you know, and they would make they would bully me relentlessly about it. You know, and I'm like, so this is in my head now because I'm getting bullied with it. So I would convince myself, you're making it up, you're making it up, you're making it up. And it took a long time before I got to the point where I was like, okay, this is real. This actually happened. But the only time I could ever get to that point was when I would get drunk enough, you know, which was part of my my self-sabotage and abuse and long-term just crash and burn that I had in life with it was that just got worse and worse. You know, with the drinking and the dealing with it, because once you realize, once you get to that point where that light light goes on, it doesn't go back off. Mm-hmm. And then now all of a sudden you have this layer of just shame that you that you carry with you constantly. And you just for me, I just learned I learned to hate myself. I couldn't live in my own skin. And, you know, so I, I all I did was I worked at worked at work and I gave myself and I tried to do as much as I could for other people because that was the only thing that I was finding any kind of reward or satisfaction in. But it would just like any addiction, the more you do it, the more you need. And there's that element of diminishing returns where you just can't do anymore and you start to break down. And then I was supplementing that breakdown with, with boots and, and other stuff at a certain point. And it just degenerative effects of that was the nightmare that I'm still recovering from um, over the course of many years. So to answer your question is it legitimately it was both at the same time. I both mm-hmm. didn't know and didn't realize it and did at the same time. 
And it wasn't until Katie from the athletic, much like Brent's story called me and, uh, you know, told me that she heard from a couple people that I was somebody that she absolutely had to get in touch with. And before she could even get to her question, I was like, you're way too far downfield. You're talking to me. Like you need to get on the phone and talk to some other people before you get to me. Cause I felt like I was the only one in the world mm-hmm. at that point. Um, I couldn't even wrap my head around it at that point. And unfortunately I was wrong. You know, I wish that was the case, but it's not the case, you know? And it was at that moment that it really changed for me, you know, and there was no more going back. There was no more repressing or hiding it anymore. What was the point in which, you know, we all talk about like rock bottom, but did you reach a point of just like, I can't deal with this anymore before like the true, you know, leaning into the healing started? What was that like for you? You want me to go on this one, Brent? Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah. So I was in real, real bad shape. I was in bad shape already by the time that Katie got to me. You know, my level of quit and just self-loathing and uh, spite for myself was just, uh, it was uh, totally off the rails. And when that story came out and I realized how real this was and that it was all going to come out, I just, I ambushed myself in a lot of different ways. And uh, that was real close to my, my last straw and my end, which I had a plan to get my part of the story done, get it out and then kill myself. And I mean, to the point where I wrote my name on a bullet and I just couldn't, I couldn't deal with it, you know, and I just thinking about everybody reading it and hearing it and the, you know, even the selfish parts of it, feeling like they were going to make fun of me again. And flashing just the shaming and the bullying and, you know, also the, the guilt that I was carrying for working in hockey for so long and being a part of it and not standing up sooner and not saying something when I knew that this happened and just carrying that was uh, was crippling. You know, I mean, I couldn't even stand the game anymore. I left the game that I loved years ago because I just couldn't hold it. It was, it was too much. It made me resent myself and the game too much where I couldn't deal with it anymore. So my, my self-destruction went extremely far, you know, to the point where if Mike didn't show up when he did, I'm, I don't think I had another day in me. Mm. And Mike is just, so I have the timeline, right? Mike was the one I'll like put a link to your website and everything for survivors for change. But like in the timeline was, he was one of the first ones he believes that started experiencing the abuse. Yeah. Yeah. He's a very, very early on potentially the first one, as far as we know, with, with abuse, with our, our inner circle of survivors that we've built, he's, he's athlete A there. And that was in the early eighties. Is that? That's right. When was Chico like taken off coaching altogether? Like, I know that happened fairly that recently. Happened seven years ago. Was it? Yeah. 17. No, it was, it was after that, wasn't it? It was after it was the article. 19. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's after the article, 19 or 20. When he got his permanent ban from Sport, Yeah. He stopped coaching formally at Robert Morris, I want to say, at like 2017, but he wasn't banned from coaching formally, you're right, until 2020. He was still doing private lessons down in Florida, from what we understood. Wow. Wow. You know, so yeah, this spans a long, long time. Yeah. 40 hard years. And what people don't realize either, and it's not really in the article, is he had a goalie school. So not only did he coach us and players and stuff like that, he had a summer goalie school where he rotated in kids from seven to 17 that came to his goalie school for a week on end. And from what I gather, just, you know, reading and a few things you've sent me to watch, there's no true punishment for this behavior at this point. No, the only punishment that's been 
the public opinion and just the fact that he's been exposed and people are taking it seriously now. It's no longer just the worst kept secret in hockey. And he's pariah now, and that, that is a form of punishment, obviously, on its own. Punishment is one thing. You talk to our survivor group, we all have a different opinion on what punishment looks like. You know, for me, like, it's not about that. I couldn't live with the anger anymore, you know, and, and just despite of him. Punishment is what it's about. For me, it's about accountability and setting the standard, yeah. you know, because without that, nothing's going to change, you know, but there's other guys on, on our group that'll tell you, push them off a cliff. We all have our different stance on that. Brent, I don't, I don't know exactly even where you stand on it. I know it's a tough one. No, no. I think my wife is, my wife is on the push them off the cliff standpoint, but I'm more of the, I just want to educate people. I want people to understand what this looks like, how to prevent it and, and give them a resource whatever it is, coaching, it doesn't, or athletes, whoever it is, um, any male, even females, give them a, an out and give them an option. And, and I think our story's giving light to this right now, but I don't, I'm past being mad at him. I have better things to do with my life. And he's not, he's not, the only time I really think about him is there was a, a four year period where I spent a lot of time thinking about him and um, actually even smelled him one time in my car because he had a mm-hmm. distinct smell and I had to pull over and puke and walked around. I was on the side of the highway and I walked probably a half mile up the road and came back and it was, wasn't very good, but yeah, I mean, I don't even think about the guy now. And if I do, it's, if we're talking about it in this light, it's, it's more of a positive thing than it is a negative thing. Just trying to help people. Yeah. What did healing look like for you in terms of did you go to therapy? Um, was it just through support of peers who had experienced this? Like, what was that process like? That's a great question. So my healing started probably the first time I heard about it. I was with um, I was with my buddy, Angelo, and my wife. We were in Denver for our 70-year hockey reunion when Katie called me. And Angelo and my wife were the first part of the healing process. I saw therapy. I did go to therapy for a while. My mom died of stage four cancer as well as my dad did. And um, when my mom got stage four cancer, I went to, I'd never been, I hadn't gone to church since I was 10 years old. Now I'm 26 going to church. And I went into church and the priest was like, for, you know, to do confessional. And he gave me the whole thing. And I'm like, look, I haven't been here in 17 years. So we're going to skip bypass all the stuff that I've done. And I just really want to focus on one thing. So I told him about my father. I told my father before he passed away, he was the most selfish son of a bitch I ever met in my life because he wouldn't go to the hospital. So I live with those words really up until about four years ago. The reason why I tell you the story is the priest told me to write a letter to my father and then go up in the mountains in Denver and burn it. And I thought that was the stupidest, silliest thing I'd ever heard in my life. When the article came out, I wrote a letter to my mom. I wrote a letter to my dad. I wrote a letter to the Greenbergs. They were the, um, the people that ran the organization, but they ended up firing Chico halfway through the season because they heard people were staying at his house, like kids, players were staying at his house, so they fired him. So I wrote a letter to them. And then I wrote a letter to Chico, took them all out to the park. I was in Charlotte, burned them all. I took pictures of them before I burned them, just so if I ever wanted to go back and read them. And that right there was the start of my healing. Because before that, it was like anxiety and stress. And I never had that stuff before. I never experienced it. I get a little bit of anxiety before I played a hockey game, but that was more like positive energy, like knowing mm-hmm. I was going to go out and do something. This anxiety and stress was just way different. And um, so I saw therapy. Um, I probably had anxiety and anger or stress for the last four and a half years. And it wasn't until about six months ago. I haven't had it in six months. I don't know what I did, but yeah, I, I know what I did, but yeah. So that's, that's kind of where my healing process went. And the letter was a huge, a huge part of it. 
Yeah, maybe the first time truly expressing those thoughts and feelings and things that you were experiencing and then releasing them. Yeah, I'm the only one that can read them because they're written in chicken scratch and there's no commas, there's no parentheses, there's capital letters, there's swear words. And yeah, it's, um, I just wrote, I just sat down, wrote and uh, didn't worry about grammar, nothing, just spit it all out. And after burning them, I don't know, I wish I would have taken the priest 17 years or when I was 17 or 27 or 26, I guess. I wish I would have taken his advice then because it would have helped with my dad. I carried my dad's guilt longer than I carried Chico's guilt. Thank you for sharing that. No, I Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Thank you for sharing that. And I know, you know, there's obviously, there's no end to healing, right? It's a continuous process. And Kelly, what was it like for you, at least the beginning of that process? Like, how did you get started down that road? Well, yeah, like I was saying before, my downfall was pretty aggressive. Right. So when I got caught right at the very bottom and set forth on a new path, I mean, the moment of that for me was, you know, Mike explaining to me that he's met with he's met other survivors and they're all all of these age groups and, you know, everything. And the one thing that's consistent is like these types of feelings. And, you know, there's a lot of X, Y and Z that just matched up when you're saying, but, you know, that we're all hurting in our own way. And it's like, how do how do we? stop this you know how do we help other people because the one thing that we all found healing and immediately was in each other you know and for me that was the first time uh, remotely to like companionship and or anything like that i mean that and it showed in every relationship in my life i got and helped facilitate toxic relationships you know as romantically and i pushed away all my friends and alienated my family completely and you know i couldn't facilitate a relationship was sure that nobody was going to understand me or just didn't, you know, and that I was just my own alien on a foreign world. And uh, when I met these guys, that changed immediately. And that's really where the journey started for me. I know for a lot of people, and I don't want to discourage, I want to be clear on something also that for most people, the journey starts when they own their truth and they say it out loud, you know, and, you know, for us, there was nothing in place. There was no, this cheer system, this uh, engagement opportunity, like these, these paths hadn't been forged before, right? So when we when we came out with our truth, we were still in this element of there's a reason nobody talks about this and never did before. And, you know, the isolation and the shame and all that stuff, is it's horrifying to go through. For people coming forward, and we've seen that now hundreds of times since we started doing this, that their healing journey starts at the moment of truth. And that's a really important thing that I really want to come through clear because sharing our stories is, I think, important from the standpoint to see that like the process has started and also that you don't have to come stand up in front of the cameras and and under the lights and shout it out to the world and tell your deepest, darkest secrets to make this happen for you. You know, that part's been done and there's places for you to come share so you can start that journey and not start it the way that we did it on a downward spiral. You know, so once I met these guys and I realized I wasn't alone putting work into why that works. And that actually early formations as survivors for change was amazing for me because it gave me something very real to focus on and put my energy into other than self-sabotage. Right. And then quickly got myself with some help. Actually didn't just get myself. I had help finding a therapist that would take me on and getting into therapy right away. And therapy was, was a, a life-saving event for me, you know, getting in with somebody that, would listen to me objectively, but actively and help me build some tools and reprioritize a lot of my feelings and organize them. So they weren't just these cluttered explosions of thoughts and feelings. 
what they were actually put into columns and it articulated so I could focus on them one task at a time. And it didn't take long before I started seeing some real results, real life results for the effects of the therapy. And that was huge. You know, the other things that I, I know worked for me was I, I got real involved in things like hot yoga, you know, and adding the meditative aspect to it and stuff like that and getting my body moving again and making it okay to be in a vulnerable situation with other people and those types of things was also very healthy. I want to say too, like, I don't want to discount this either. Like my healing process was, you know, realizing that, but the, the true healing was Sax and Kelly and, you know, being able to share my story. And, and again, I mean, you know, I had survivor's guilt. Like for me, that was a real thing. That was, uh, you know, and I told, I share this all the time and they, they get pissed off, but I always tell them that nothing ever happened to me. And and through those guys, I realized, yeah, it did it hurt for the kind of the smack in the face that they were giving me like, no, Brent, this was, you know, this did happen to you. And I had survivor's guilt. I'm like, why? You know, so those guys have been just a huge healing process for me as well, as well as some of the other things I did, but with Kelly and Sachs and some of the others, it's been, that's even been more healing than, than that, but yet to, where the journey started and in the, with Kelly and, and Mike, it's been awesome. And we get a chance to see each other two or three times a year. And, you know, it's nice to kind of hang out and kind of do the guys thing. And, but we still do talk about this stuff. We, and it's healing to have those conversations between the three of us. And I'm glad you touched on that because something I've seen working as a therapist and coach is a lot of people will have a hard time facing that they did experience trauma because other people have had something worse. And it is mm -hmm. that guilt aspect of like, well, this happened to me, but it wasn't as bad as what happened to my right. sister or my cousin or my friend. And so they'll kind of negate the actual experience. I've spent a lot of time meeting survivors or victims becoming survivors a lot of time, many, many, unfortunately, over the years now. And um, I can tell you that that is a consistent across the board. You know, and, you know, most of us that this happens to, like, that's because we're empathetic people. We're compassionate. That's why part of the reason we can be isolated and, and be so drawn into these predatory relationships. You know, so when we're looking at it, yeah, of course we feel our pain, but how often do we feel our pain first? I mean, even you, Lily, how often do you feel your pain first? You know, I'm sure you can relate on levels like that, even just with family dynamics and stuff like that. You know, kind people are just that way, you know, but it's across the board in the comparison aspect of it. You know, it takes a long time to get to the point where you stop doing that. And you never, maybe we don't even stop doing it. We have a better relationship with that feeling, you know, and we understand it better. And that's a really important part, even a mile marker in your growth, I would say. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's a great point. What would you say are some red flags for grooming or abuse, whether it's someone with, you know, a child now listening to this, a teacher, someone maybe younger, even experiencing something like if you could pinpoint a couple like, oh, this was, you know, a pattern or a red flag. Frank, do you want to start and then I'll run off for you? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I think from the grooming standpoint, where you're going to see is the predator, and I'll just call it what it is, a predator will start to initially spend a lot more time with that person. So you get praises, you get presents, you'll get you know, from a parent standpoint too, the parents need to realize that they're going to be the first ones to get groomed typically. And so they have to recognize those signs as well, that this person's coming to them. They're going to promise a lot of things to whatever it is, the, whoever the, the person is, but there's going to be a lot of promises made. Then they're going to spend a lot of time with them. You know, Hey, I'm going to take them to practice. I'm going to take them to the game. I'll babysit them, whatever it might be. So if they're spending a lot of extra time and you're seeing gifts and you're seeing that kind of stuff from a grooming standpoint, 
to me, that's one of the bigger red flags. That's what, if you look at all of our stories, that's kind of one of the things that that started the the whole process. So if there's extra special attention, if there's that kind of stuff, that's going to be a huge red flag for a lot of parents. Yeah, good point, Brent. And that's actually where I would have started also is that the increased one-on-one time and like an an evolved case. And let's preface this also. Almost every coach out there is is an awesome person in it for all the right reasons. And being available to your players, making yourself available to your players is a really, really important part of of your position and responsibility. But the boundaries have to be set and those lines have to be clear. And what happens here is those you know, we get used to these these predator level authority figures. They start with the reasonable amount of access and one-on-one time, but then it starts crossing over those lines, right? And when when that happens, you start to see them also, what they'll do is they'll shake up and create instability in the prey's life. And it'll start with what they're in control of. Uh, if we're talking about sports, it'll tar- start with their team situation. They'll start to be isolated in the team. The coach will actually lash out at that at that player more often and put him on a pedestal in certain areas, but it'll be very unstable dynamic, dichotomy of treatment, right? And what that does is that puts that, that player in a position where they start to question their instincts and question the things that they feel like they, they do know or don't know. So they have to go back to the coach and follow that platform and process because that's the only way that they can feel success and not have not either be embarrassed by being on a pedestal or embarrassed by being bullied, right? So that starts. that's when you start to see the grooming process go from a big wave up and down and start to stabilize for the predator is by creating instability in the prey's life. And then the, the next thing that you see after that is typically the isolation, right? At that point, when the predator knows that they have that element of control, they start to be again, driving wedges in this person's life, right? And that's why the, groom, the early stage grooming is so important for the predator to go in and get to know the family and establish the trust and have rapport with the brothers and sisters or a girlfriend and a boyfriend. So they have all that stuff. And then, you know, the player sees that and they think that it's safe and it's healthy and everybody trusts. So when you, when that person starts driving wedges, right, it's pretty easy for them to sever those ties. And it can be hard for us to see because at that point, as parents, you know, and family members and stuff, we've already been groomed to the point where we've given over that trust. Right. And so that when the isolation starts to happen, that's when the bad stuff starts to occur. That's when the grooming evolves into, hey, let's go out to dinner. Just you and me. Hey, let's go do this. Just you and me. Hey, come sit on the couch. Let's watch something together. You know, here, have a beer, you know, like just making going to the next step, throwing some porn, like that kind of stuff. It's not exclusive to our experience. This is common. Right. And the desensitization of the situation. Yeah, it's very similar to like the power and control will when you look at mm-hmm. domestic violence too and getting yep. into a violent yep. relationship. How can someone support they have a man in their life who has experienced this grooming and this abuse, whether it's, you know, a wife, a girlfriend, a friend, how could someone support you guys in the healing process? Um, I think the biggest thing is, is just to be there and listen. I think any healing process is just trying to listen. Don't try and understand it because you're not going to be able to. I think that's the biggest thing. Like you just, you're not going to be able to understand what happened. But if you can listen, you know, I think the other part of it too is, is that we're somewhat very sensitive because of the patterns and the processes that happen to us. And you have to understand like what Kelly was saying, the isolation, the putting you up on a pedestal, but then demoralizing you in front of your teammates, putting you up on a pedestal and then demoralizing you. And when you get into relationships that become toxic, 
demoralization, then we just, we go into an inner shell and we still do it to this day. Like um, I do it when, when my, you know, something happens in my life and I feel like I'm demoralized or someone's talking down to me, I shut down. And it's one of those things. And that's part of what they have to understand. It's also part of what we have to talk to them about as well is these are the processes and you just can't, these are our triggers. If you really want to call it, you know, this is what's going to trigger me. And you just got to listen. That's the hardest part though, because everyone wants to fix everything. And especially for a guy, when we're doing our peer to peer, you want to try and fix things, but you can't, you just got to listen, ask a lot of questions. If we've come to you, or if you understand the story, then it means we want to talk about it. And so if you ask a lot of questions and don't try and fix the problem, just kind of walk your way through questions, stuff starts to get figured out pretty quickly. Mm. Anything else you want to add, Kelly? Yeah. I mean, that is really the primary point on it. And, you know, with, with some practice and with some, with some time that's put into it, everybody's going to end up with different tools for the unique situation and unique individual coming to people like us survivors for change and asking us for direct input, you know, giving us an opportunity to understand that situation, help give you a roadmap of how to navigate those conversations, those feelings and some ideas of here's what you might see next. These signs, do these feelings, do these behaviors make sense to you, you know, and start narrowing that scope. So, you know, somebody that's just a loved one, I I say just a loved one. It's a terrible way to say that. There's someone that (laughs) is a loved one, but doesn't understand these dynamics. They've never really experienced that. Expecting them to figure all that stuff out on their own is uh, not fair. It's not going to be successful or not as successful as it would be if you go to a trusted source. And this is why, again, therapeutics is so important. You know, we tell people all the time, say, I'm sad. I'm hurt by this. I'm not broken, though. You know, I'm not going through the things that you went through. And that's good you're there and that you're recognizing that. But the idea with the therapy is that gives you the tools and the platform and the path to follow. So you, so you have measured outcomes so you can see the success in your growth. So like Brent said, was the most important thing to be there and to actively listen, right? To, you know, and and you don't need to figure it all out. It's important for us just to know that we have a safe place to talk about the things that we're feeling. And then for people that are on the other side of that, that are being there for this, for the survivor, it's also okay to say when you had enough, you know, and like when it goes too far or like, you know what, like I'm here for you, you know, I'm going to do my best to hear this. But when, when you get to a point where it's hurting you, it's okay to say, stop, we need to pick this up later. I think this, now it's time for us to talk to somebody else and then just love them and let's make sure that they know you're proud of them for being so honest. It's important for people in these situations to start seeing some reward again, because it's something that we have a really, really hard time accepting you know, is celebrating the success or feeling rewarded about about doing something uh, brave or, you know, any of those things. We don't respond well to it. And that's where we're counting on the people in our life to help us to get back on track. And I think two things to add to that as well, Kelly, is one, when you have experienced abuse and what we've seen in the past, and you can read the research on it, most guys walk into toxic relationships. And you have to understand that if you're the on the other side of that relationship, it's nothing you did. It's not your fault. Don't take it personal. It's just, we don't know. And I say we, when I say survivors, our relationship, our idea of a relationship is now skewed because the predators skewed our relationship of what an idea of what a relationship looks like. And so, you know, as you're asking these questions, understand that it's not personal. It's just something that we've gone through. It's what our, our idea of a new relationship looks like. And so it's, that's part of that listening. That's part of that talking. I think the other point too, that I wanted to make is that we're survivors but there's more survivors out there. And, and what I mean by that is the moms, the dads, the brothers, the sisters that got groomed, they have to understand that they're survivors as well. 
they've been through the same process that I went through. Their kid might have got the abuse, but it's the same process and they're going to feel that survivor's guilt. And so, you know, we are still a place for those people to also come to. I was sitting next to a lady that was um, a huge proponent of Chico's and, and we were sitting in a meeting and I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, you're a survivor. And she looked at me and she started crying because she didn't realize it. You know, she didn't realize she was, you know, um, she was a victim and everyone that's involved or everyone that's around that predator is a victim. It doesn't matter whether you get the abuse side of it or not, you're a victim because you've been groomed in one way or another. Can I touch on that real quick also? Because there's an important part there with the aspect of the families, the grooming part of it and the healing that comes out of that also, you know, and including with, with my family, which I'll share on that. We found a lot of healing out of a very traumatic experience. One of the wedges that was driven with Chico and Mike was my family, you know, especially the picture of my mom and stuff like that. And, you know, and when she found out when I came clean, when I came out with this, you know, see, I'm still working. On this. <laughs> yep. and there's the case in point. When I came out with this, she, of course, it crushed her. You know, it was heartbreaking, but she's like, this makes more sense now. You know, and my, you know, my brother, my sister, you know, like so many people around me, they're like, oh, like this makes so much more sense now. And what that did is that opened that door back up to heal together and participate in that healing journey together. And everybody's better now for it. You know, and I, and you know, I know I talk to my family all the time. We have a healthier relationship than we ever had. That was because they were, when they saw it and they understood that they were groomed too, you know, that they were able to go, okay, like this makes sense and let's come back together for the greater good. And it's working. I like what you just said about that. And I wanted to kind of, we talked about the red flags, but were there any noticeable like behavioral changes for either one of you? when the grooming and or abuse started. I know I used to tell parents years ago, I worked as an adolescent therapist and I would always say, if there's ever like all of a sudden a behavior change, like your outgoing child has become very more reclusive or more introverted, or, you know, maybe they're changed something with their body drastically, like just any kind of drastic change, like ask questions, like get curious because something is probably going on at school or at someone else's house. Was there anything for you guys like that? I'll jump on that one first. Um, I had some pretty drastic ones. It was one thing during I had, uh, it shut me off from sex, you know, and like uh, at least healthy in a healthy manner. It just put me in, it put me in a box. I couldn't, I lost, I immediately lost touch with what a healthy sexual relationship um, and really just numbed me to it and turned me away from it uh, almost altogether. Um, that was one that happened early on. A major one for me, though, going through were, were things like uh, it gave me an incredible outburst level of jealousy um, and just protectiveness. And like I get to the point where I just thought everybody was coming for you all the time. Everybody's doing something behind your back. You know, it, if it's not now, it's only a matter of time. And it was one of the most toxic things I've ever been as a human. And it's something I'm extremely ashamed of. But, that I, you know, since being honest with it, it's something that's changed dramatically in my life, you know, with that recognition of like, oh. I think this makes sense why I was going there, you know, and, you know, for, for me, that was a big sign. I see that with a lot of other people too, you know, and, and I think there's a lot of self-sabotage there. When you're in a relationship, like, like a coach player relationship that goes like this kind of makes sense when you start to think that everything intimate in your life is going to come back to you as, as a in monster form, um, you know, but so, and then the isolation aspect, you're, you know, you keep away from those types of situations and, you know, like, 
relationships with any of the old people older than you just on a one-on-one level it just squashes all of that again i'll go back to it i think i was rather lucky because i got out without anything like that happening where i didn't have to again i didn't think anything happened to me so for me to have any of those those kind of things or thoughts or ideas that never occurred to me it just it was just another day he was just another coach he was my father figure like i said i mean it wasn't until maybe fortunate enough for me but it wasn't until a long time after that that you know i realized it happened even my wife i mean i'll I took my wife out to Chicago and, and introduced him to Chico and told I, my wife knew the story. And my wife said it to me one time. She's like, it was him. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. So she even recognized it. And I was still a long time after it happened. I still was denying it. And um, the one thing I do appreciate that she never did was when it did the story did come out, she never said, and I didn't think she would ever do that anyway, but she never said, I told you so, mm-hmm. which was nice because it would have been easy for her to do that. But I never went through any of that stuff. Like I never went through relationship problems. I mean, if I did, it was just because of me. But um, I never had a chance to experience any of that because, I, again, I never thought anything happened to me. What do you think is the biggest barrier for men to speak out? I know we talked a lot about you know, the shame and the guilt surrounding it. But what do you think is the biggest thing preventing men from speaking out of abuse? I mean, we're the tough guys. Like this stuff doesn't happen to us. And here's the bigger thing. If it did happen to us, then we'd let it happen to us. That's the stigma is that we let it happen to us. And that's the hardest part. It's not the, you know, you're the big tough bully guy or, you know, whatever. When that article came out, I saw like some, some friends of mine were like, you know, why'd you let this happen? I didn't let this happen to me. You know, it's not like I said, Hey Chico, come on into my house and let's, I didn't let this happen to me. He started with my mom and worked his way to me. And, you know, I, you know, I'm glad that Kelly, like Kelly said, he, he was able to rectify his relationship with his mom. I'm the opposite. In it. I'm glad my mom passed away. Like, cause that would have killed her. Absolutely would have killed her. So I'm glad my mom wasn't around to bear witness to the article, but yeah, I think it's the stigma of we're you know, this isn't supposed to happen to us. And if it did, we let it happen. And I think we're also seeing, you know, now, fortunately, you know, people say what they will about, you know, the new generation and all this stuff. What we're also seeing is new generation of like openness. And, and inclusiveness and bravery to speak, speak out is being embraced. And, you know, I think that until recently, society wasn't ready to hear these things, especially because that, you know, gay shaming and stuff like that, you know, it's just been, I mean, it's real. It's still real. It's getting uh, managed better and understood better. And uh, people are becoming more informed on that. So you know, there was never really an opportunity of this, even just for the gay bashing aspect of it, you know, and just automatically like you're gay. You know, because this yeah. happened, and it's like there's not, nothing wrong with being gay. We support that, but that of not being gay as being a straight man, you know, that's still being bullied in anything. Being bullied is brutal, mm-hmm. you know. And the bullying was just everybody experiences that, you know. Whenever you touch anything near this stuff, subject for all time until recent, you know. And so it's just now getting to the point where it's safe for people to come forward and be safe as who they are. But to manage a situation that happened to them, that they were in a situation where they were victimized, you know, so we haven't really seen this opportunity before because other people did try to do this before and they were squashed by a toxic culture and a society that just didn't want to hear it and couldn't rectify it in their heads without it being put into this box or this box. 
And no, it's still is, a very hard sorry, subject to talk. No, no, I'm sorry. And it's still a very hard subject to talk about. Like yeah. when you talk to other people and once you broach it, they're like, whoa, 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 slow down. I mean, it's still not, it's not as accepted as it would be for a woman to come out and say that this happened to her. That's, and I say accepted, but it's, it's kind of what our culture is. It's more acceptable in the culture because you see like the, the gymnasts and the, you know, you see that kind of stuff. Like all of that is coming out. There's not a whole lot of guys coming out and saying, I mean, um, the Pendowski or whatever it was, the Penn State, but there's not a whole lot of guys that are coming out and doing it. It's still a very taboo subject to talk about. It's not an easy subject to talk about or to even broach with people, but it's no, better than think, it was, yeah. like Kelly said. I think that's a great point, especially because for women, it's, you know, especially when abuse comes from a man, it's like we are, you know, we're typically smaller, you're stronger. And like you just said, it feels like I let it happen, not that it happened to me. And there is so much more of a stigma around that. I used to work in the domestic violence kind of world when I did therapy. And one thing that always surprised people were the number of men that were abused in relationships. And I could tell a story about a relationship. And if it was the woman as, you know, being the survivor, the victim of the abuse, everyone agreed with it. But if you flipped around the genders, it was like, well, why doesn't he leave? Isn't he bigger than her? Isn't he? And it's like, because people just don't, you know, understand how abuse works and the different, you know, cycles of it. And so I, yeah, I see that. Like there seems to be so much more of a stigma still. Well, we see one of the first real visible representations of that with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Mm-hmm. And in that trial, and like, look at what how awful of a situation, just like dangerous of a situation is, is that. It's one of those things where you're in a spot where if you do try to say something, you do come out and say something, it's going to be worse, you know. And our situation, while that they're different, right? There are, are those elements that are very relatable there. And you know, like for us, that was definitely a thing. You know, you look at Chicago hockey culture and the system, the good old boys club, and you know, like when people did try to come forward, I mean. Chris Jensen wrote a letter in 2010, you know, and here we are in 2023 and this is really just starting to get, and it just buried, you know, and just squashed, just made to go away. And then that person is just put on the exile for standing up to do the right thing, something we all need to be dealt with, you know? So the, the change is starting to happen and it's important that people get on board and back it. You know, we have to be willing to listen to do some of the things that, you know, the hard work that's not fun all the time. To, in order to understand these things and, and get informed. Because until we, we form ourselves as, as a culture, the culture won't heal and change. So when you grow up, you talk about the female teacher and the and the young boys, right, in school. And you hear all these guys that are like, well, I, you know, why is he turning them in? I'd be all over that. Like, that's a dream come true. But what they don't understand is the, when we go back to the grooming part, is the grooming, the isolation from their parents and their and their friends and stuff like that. And that teacher really has control of that person. Because at the end of the day, Teenagers have, they think they do, but they have no idea what's really happening to them. And so role reverse that, like you said, Lily, and you put a guy in a, in a female and it's all of a sudden everyone's like, what the heck? And it really, like, I thought that until this happened to me. And I'm like, wait a second, that's what's happening to that kid happened to me. That's horrible. Mm-hmm. And he has no idea what's going on. Yeah, that is a great example. I've, I've used that example as well for that kind of situation. And I do think that is something that we're going to have to continue to push against in society. Cause I do think there's still that idea that again, it's like, Oh, lucky teenage boy, you know, he got the hot teacher or something. And it's like, no, that was still very much predatory. That's still yeah. illegal. It's wrong. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter that it was a boy and not a girl. 
Yeah. The gender equality is something that's important, and we have to look at this in this, through that lens also. And what we're talking about is we're talking about adults and a position of power and kids in a subordinate situation. And uh, regardless of gender or gender association, that's what they are. Adults in a position of power and children in a subordinate situation. That's the only way it should be looked at, you know, because those positions of power, I mean, ultimately that's the root of the evil, you know, and as we start looking at solutions for this, you know, how do we fix the problem? So far what we've done, and there's a lot of people that have been working really hard on this for a lot of years and made a lot of progress, but what has what we haven't done is we've been treating the shoreline that's toxic from all this smudgy, disgusting, nasty water that's flowing downstream. What we have to do is get all the way back to the poisoned well. You know, we have to get all the way back to the roots and where this starts. You know, when we see something that happens to a professional or somebody at the higher levels, it's shocking. It's, and you can tell how far downstream this gets, but it starts back at, with the kids. You know, and it starts back to these, these intimate relationships that are held by people that have a position of power over children. And that's where the education and the informed programs need to be instituted and instituted right away. Because if we can treat the poison well, we can clean the water downstream. That's very well said. What would either of you or both of you say to a survivor listening to this right now that maybe hasn't come out and shared and has just been suppressing and dealing with the abuse in private? Um, You have teammates. You, You have a place to go, a safe place to go. You have people that have been through what you've been through, especially with what we're trying to do as survivors for change. But you have you have teammates. And that's what we say from a hockey community standpoint. And I'm talking from a hockey community standpoint. Outside the hockey community, it doesn't matter. We're still a small, the male survivor is still a community and it's still a teammate type thing. And our hockey minds, this is how we process things, is we don't leave our teammates behind. We're always there. If you watch a hockey game, they're always sticking up for each other. So whether it's a hockey player or survivor, we take the same approach we're there for you. We're there to help you. We're there to stand behind you and um, we're there to support you. For me. And yeah, thank you, Brent. And that's spot on for who we are and what we're doing. And, you know, for me, it's, you're not alone. You know, you're just, you're just not alone in that. Cause that's one of the hardest things, you know, to, to rectify with these situations. And even that for a lot of people is hurtful, you know, cause sometimes, you know, you get such a close relationship with that person. And so you almost, even as awful as it feels, you almost feel jealous that there's other people and stuff like that. And you weren't the only one, you know, but understanding those feelings, it's, it's available to you. You know, you have a safe place to go where you're, you're not going to be thrown in the bus. Your, your story's not going to be shared with the world. It's going to stay right here with the people that you can, you can trust, you can count on that will understand you and be there for you. And that's how, how this starts. It only gets better from here. The other thing that I hope that they realize is to celebrate their wins also. You're not a bad person for having this inside of you and not, and not coming for forward. You're not weak. You're not, you're, you're brave. You're strong for even making it this far with that. Now go give your, do yourself the favor, give yourself the win of starting your journey by owning your truth and take it to a safe place. Don't take it out on yourself anymore. Put it into a place where you can be done and grow from. That's very well said. How can someone get involved with survivors for change? The more visibility we have, the better, right? Um, we are active on social media, particularly Facebook and Instagram uh, at we are S4C with the number four for S4C and then the S4C uh, respectfully. So follow us, you know, share our posts, um, ask questions, you know, start 
helping us connect to your communities and your networks. Because you never know when you share something who is who it's going to pop up on your feed that's going to see it that's going to be like, holy cow, I didn't know that this exists. I mean, we see this all the time. Brent recently, you know, experienced this even. Um, and that's been, a, you know, just a huge change in a person's life, you know, just from, you know, connecting over Facebook, you know, seeing a post that, that Brent put up. So that's one really important way to do it. If you have more questions, you want to get involved in another way, you can go to our website, which is www.survivorsforchange.org. And that's spelled out in whole entirety. And you can email us right from there and ask us, you know, any question you want, ask us how you want to get involved, you're interested in volunteering or being a part of our peer support network. Um, we're also going to be launching a brand new sophisticated website and online resource center in the coming year. We're really excited about and maybe we can come on and share a little bit more with you guys in your audience when we get that up because it's a new way to come find help and information and it's not static like a lot of those you know when you google searches like i need help how do i find it you know and you got to work weed through it and dig through all this stuff where with ours it'll be sort sorted and directed and more uh curated for you you know so we're really excited to share that with everybody so make sure you keep your eyes peeled for that we're easy to find and you can ask us anything and you can do it in a completely safe place Thank you for sharing that. And I will put all of that information in the show notes so that anyone listening can find it. And I just want to thank both of you. I think it is incredibly courageous to talk about abuse and talk about these uncomfortable things and shine a light and create a space for more men and survivors to be able to come and start healing and just Thank you both so much for being so open and, you know, Brent talking to a stranger when we, you know, just <laughs> met that night and Kelly sharing your story and that it takes a lot of courage to share something like that. So just, I commend you both and thank both of you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for having us on. And for your audience for taking the time to listen to something that we know is, we know is difficult. We know it's heavy, but it's important, you know, like three out of four, kids are participating in youth sports and we went into the statistics behind the abuse rates and stuff like that it, it is scary and we, the only way that we're going to fix this is doing it together and it starts with being informed so on behalf of all survivors for change we appreciate everybody that took the time to listen to this and uh, give the care that they did for it the podcast is called growth over easy because i very much believe in choosing growth over the easy path in life what does growth mean to each of you? Go ahead, Kelly. For me, growth is more a product of clarity than it is of stature. If you would ask me 10 years ago, it would have been about fortifying myself and making myself more strong, you know, as close to unkillable and unbeatable as possible. And, you know, there's a lot of strength in that and there's something to it. And I think that is part of growth is resilience. Yeah, but the more I've learned, especially through this process, the more I, clearer it becomes that the more clearly I'm seeing things, the better the result of the work becomes, you know, and that leads to just a happier life because there's not so much smashing my face into walls. You know, it's a lot more active solution making. So I believe in clarity as growth. Thank you. What about you, Brent? Um, so I think you and I had this conversation when we were sitting at the bar and, um, for me, growth has, this whole process has led me to where I think I deserve to be and want to be. Um, I have no idea how I got here, but um, I think I do. One of the psychologists I saw 
she said, when you, when you become stressed and anxiety, start like the seams on your pants, start like just kind of rubbing them together to bring yourself back in the moment. And um, over the course of time, I learned how to do that. And my growth right now is just about me being in a stress-free and anxiety-free life. And I've been working towards that. In the last six months, I've been able to do that. I don't think about, I can't control what's going to happen a second from now. So I don't worry about it. And I can't control what I just did. I can't change what I just did. So I don't worry about it. So I truly live in the moment and it's a very peaceful place to be. And I have had no stress, no anxiety for the last six months. It's a very cool place to live. Sometimes it can be, sometimes people say it's, you know, are you working as hard as you could work? It kind of seem a little bit like stagnant a little bit or, you know, but nah, I'm living my best life right now. I live in a great city. I have a great wife and she's living a somewhat stress-free life as well. So that's kind of what, and if I can continue to do that, that's my growth is, is to be able to, to do that and to be able to share it with people. Um, I'd love to share it with people. I, I want more and more people to, to live this kind of life because it really is kind of the, it's the four agreements that we talked about. Mm-hmm. I know I might have to have you come back on to talk about that and just the art of truly, you know, staying present. And, yeah. And I appreciate both of you for spending this time with me and being very present. And again, just sharing the uncomfortable things that, like you said, people don't want to talk about. But I truly believe that it's like, in order to eradicate the evil in the world, you've got to shine the light on it because it can't survive that way. It only survives in the shadows. It only survives in the dark. But if we're able to talk about it and look at it, and like you said, address the poisoned well, not just put band-aids on the symptoms, but really go to like the root, then there can be change. Yep. Awesome. Thank you both. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Lily. Bye. That's it for this episode of Growth Over Easy. One thing that would really help both us and other new potential listeners is for you to rate this show and leave a comment on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Also, make sure to link up with me at lilyrachels.com. I'm Lily Rachels across all social platforms. Please just share this podcast with anyone you think will benefit. Until next time, remember, easy is empty, growth is gold.